0: I am Vengeance. I am the Knight. I am also a podcast. I am a podcast. 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 Whoa! It's a show. It's a show. Audio only, though. What is it about? If you have time, I can tell you that it is a podcast about that Danny Benton
1: podcast. Uh, what did you want me to say in this part? It's a show. Yeah. Yeah!
2: I am a podcast.
1: Whoa! Whoa. Hey! Interviews <laughs> with friends.
0: Show. Podcast. Podcast. Podcast.
3: Hey guys, welcome to Batman the Animated Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Michael, and you're listening to an audio variety show for your ears about the legendary 1990s cartoon Batman the Animated Series. Today's sponsor, the Gotham Wharf Board of Activities, celebrating 20 years of outdoor programming at a place that smells like dead fish. Now, today's podcast episode is pretty special because I got to sit down and talk about the very first episode of BTAS with one of the most important figures in the making of the show, Andrea Romano, the casting and voice director of Batman the Animated Series. As you'll soon hear, she's an incredibly talented, driven, and creative force, also a kind human being to boot. Later on, you'll hear her
2: say things like this. Then he opened his mouth, and it was one of those wonderful casting moments that you can only pray for, where Bruce and I just looked at each other and went, oh my Lord, there it is.
3: But first I'll sit down with a good buddy of mine. She's a designer and musician, an all around great human being. Her name is Roxy Radalescu, and she's gonna say stuff like this.
4: As a kid, like I don't know that I would have been like super okay with it.
3: Like... All right, now before we get into the interview, let's check the nerd level of today's episode with my trusty robot.
4: <laughs>
1: hello hi hi hello yeah hi hi i'm looking for the host of mr batman's animated podcast well you're looking at him i'm justin who are you can you not tell by my elegant blue sash with glitter and my top hat that's shaped like a microphone? I'm the mayor of the podcast. Hi, I'm talking to you. What? How did you get in my closet? What happened to Kevin Conroy, bot? Oh, you got questions? Well, I'll answer the second question first, and the first question never. I turned your robot off because I'm talking here. Hello? Can you not see my lips moving? I'm talking here. What do you mean you're talking here. I'm talking here, okay? Because I'm the mayor of all podcasts, and I would appreciate if you're not interrupting me, because I'm talking here. It's just like if I was walking here, you wouldn't get in my way, and I'm talking here, so don't get in my way. I'm running for re-election, so I figured that I would come in here, talk to your listeners about why they should vote for me. Moody Gugliani. Hi, nice to meet you. Okay, Moody Gugliani. Is that your real name? A man never tells. We got our secrets, but you know what I do tell?s is that I'm talking here. Vote for me, Mayor of Podcast, because I'm talking here.
3: Yeah, no, I-, I heard you say it the first few times. Uh, is that your entire platform that you're talking here? Yeah, I'm talking here. Honestly, it seems pretty thin. Thank you. Yeah, I lost weight recently. That's why
1: my sash is too big. Ha! You can see it's dragging the ground. I tripped on it on the way over here. I fell down because I Tripped on my sash.
3: No, I mean, what does I'm talking here even mean? What is talking
1: here even mean? I mean, listen, I'll answer your question. What a question? What do people do
3: on podcasts? I don't know. Whatever they want, they talk about things they like. They all right. Shut up. Listen, I'll
1: stop you right there because you said it they're talking here, and I'm
3: talking here. So together, we're talking here. Vote for me. <laughs> okay, well, I got to move on. So thank you for interrupting the show, Mayor Giuliani. Please call me Moody, the mayor of podcasts, all right? It's been an absolute
1: pleasure. I'm going to use your bathroom on the way out because I'm using the bathroom here. <laughs>
3: Bye-bye for now. For now? Yeesh. Okay, sorry, guys. Uh, you never know who's going to show up in my closet, apparently. Well, let's keep this moving to... Today's episode on Leather Wings. When a vicious bat creature known as Man-Bat starts terrorizing Gotham City, everyone mistakenly thinks that Batman is the culprit. Batman must find out who the mysterious Man-Bat is and clear his own name. hoo <laughs> Intrigue. This originally aired on September 6th, 1992. It was written by Mitch Bryan, directed by Kevin Altieri, with music by Shirley Walker animated by Spectrum Animation Studio. Guest voices include Richard Mull as Harvey Dent, Meredith McRae as Francine Langstrom, and Mark the Beastmaster Singer as Kirk Langstrom, a.k.a. The Man-Bat. Now, while The Cat in the Claw was the series' premiere and first episode to air back in 1992, probably because it was on the Tales of Batman Returns, On Leather Wings was the very first episode to be produced, so this episode serves as a really great introduction to the tone and look and everything of the series. The Dark Deco was established, the 1930s retro-modern technology was in full effect, and the police blimps, boy, were they afloatin'. Seriously, this episode features more police blimp set piece work than maybe any other episode of the show. Shirley Walker's score is particularly reminiscent of the Burton films in this episode, and it really shines, especially in those Man Bat action sequences. You really feel the music soar as Batman is soaring above the skies with the Man Bat, battling him the most manly way of all, piggyback style. Also worth noting is that this is one of the few episodes where Alfred is not played by Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. Uh, Instead, it's Clive Revel, and boy, does he turn up that Alfred sass. Does he even have a heart? Yes, he does, but it's buried beneath a mountain of quips. We also get a full-on introduction to the side characters of the BTAS universe. We got Bob Hastings as Commissioner Gordon, George Costanzo as Detective Bullock, and Lloyd Bachner as Mayor Hamilton Hill. Did somebody say mayor? I'm not talking to you, mayor of podcasts. Okay, I'm pooping here. Okay, well, now we know what the mayor's doing. Uh, Before it gets any grosser, I'm going to take us to that first interview.
0: Today's fan, Roxy Radulescu.
3: Guys, you are in for a treat. Roxy is one of the most multi-talented friends I know, like unfairly multi-talented. And she also happens to be a Batman nerd through and through. As a musician, she plays with the bands Hi-Ho Silvero and Rodman. She's also a designer and art director for The Arsenal, and the creator and curator of Movies in Color, a popular Tumblr that breaks down and showcases color across various films. Seriously, take a second to look at it. It's really cool. But enough of me talking. It's time for Roxy. To Toxie.
4: We're in
3: this together now? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're both buying... We're
4: both buying the same action figure. We'll split it in half.
3: <laughs> we're both going to buy... Oh, so we're going to buy one man bad yes, action yes. figure?
4: I'll, we'll do like a <laughs> custody thing. We're like, I'll have them on the weekends. and then you. That have seems really
3: day. inconvenient. He's Let's just fair. cut them in half like you originally said. Okay. Split him vertically down the middle. <laughs>
4: yes. Absolutely. Cool. Let's do it. I'm in. $25. We can split that easily.
3: Great. <laughs> here we yeah. are.
4: Here we are. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah,
3: I'm happy to have you here as well.
4: Mm. <laughs> Great.
3: Was that a normal way to talk?
4: Mm, yeah, sure. Okay. Why not? <laughs> you,
3: you don't have to agree with me just because I'm. <laughs> no, the host. I'm here.
4: I'm here on the show, and I think I have to agree with everything that you say. That's that's not how it works.
3: Uh, no. Usually people bring in their own opinions.
4: Oh, oh I forgot those at home. Oh,
3: uh, <laughs> you packed them up in a suitcase. <laughs> I and
4: did. Then... I mean, I did bring notes. So.
3: Yeah, you did. You brought copious notes.
4: <laughs> well, sort of.
3: You um, also just rewatched the episode with me, so you've seen it two times in the last 24 hours. Yeah.
4: yeah. Which is great. I couldn't be happier. It's not it's not a bummer that I've watched it twice. No, and that's 25.
3: why I wanted you to come in. You're like right. you're one of the most enthusiastic people I know.
4: Oh, that's nice. When
3: it comes to Batman. Okay, I guess other things other in general. Things.
4: Yeah, yeah. Some some more than others, maybe.
3: <laughs> this is Roxy Radalescu. Hello. Is that how you pronounce your last name?
4: Yes. You got it perfect. Oh, great. Yeah.
3: Okay, well now we can end the podcast. <laughs> And we're here to talk on Leather Wings, Mm -hmm. the very first episode of Batman the Animated Series, Uh, but I wanted to talk to you specifically about color and composition, because that's kind of your thing.
4: Cool, yeah. yeah. Uh,
3: And anything else you want to talk about. Sure. But uh, you have a a Tumblr. I do. Movies in Color?
4: Yep, moviesincolor.com.
3: Perfect, Uh, where you kind of pick apart uh, a frame from a a movie or a different movie, and then you'll kind of do a color breakdown.
4: Yep. Yep.
3: It's super cool.
4: Thank you. Yeah, it's fun. I get to learn a lot about color and use it in my graphic design work, Uh, my wonderful day job.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, why don't we talk about color? Let's use that as like a launching point for the episode, because I feel like color is such an important part of the show, and this was the first episode, so Mm -hmm. it really set a precedent for the rest of the series.
4: Mm Mm-hmm. I agree. <laughs> Eric
3: Radomski, one of the co-creators of the show, I guess, was the one who kind of set set the precedent of like painting all the backgrounds on a black black background so like it was right. the first time that that had ever been done i guess they airbrushed it on there for a while mm-hmm. uh, until the fumes became too noxious <laughs> oh god and apparently then they were like oh, okay we'll switch uh <laughs> the overseas animators are are getting sick because oh no but for a while wow. they were favoring art over humanity yeah which, which
4: is the way it should be right any
3: good show <laughs> yeah
4: yeah we'll die for our art uh Yeah, that's got to be a terrible way to go, though, or to get sick, at least, from paint fumes. Uh, How did you die?
3: (laughs) Oh, I was uh, spray painting a background for an episode about a character named the Man Bat.
4: (laughs) You know, uh, just very brave work, uh, saving (laughs) lives over here. (laughs) Also, in that
3: world, that person died within one episode. (laughs) They're going through people really fast.
4: Oh, boy. Uh, I hope not. (laughs)
3: So what what, what are your thoughts about color?
4: Uh, in general? Or, uh, or on about the yeah, on
3: the, in the show? In yeah. the
4: show. <laughs> in general. Here we go. Let's go on a huge tangent. Uh, no. So for the episode, um, I think I'm just overall really impressed by, uh, at least to me, it's very hard to pull off a lot of dark tones together uh, simultaneously mm-hmm. in a composition, or in this case, throughout the entire episode. Um, I appreciate how very dark it is in color. There's a lot of like dark blues and like dark Purples, which is a great uh, color to go to for for darkness without using blues or or dark greens or dark reds. It's like those are kind of your staples, but I think to me, purple is an interesting interesting choice. And, and to differentiate
3: between everything,
4: yes, is
3: difficult. Yes, like yes. there's a lot of gray, black, dark purples, blues, and mm-hmm. they. Look like they should blend together, but everything feels very specific and just different enough that it's maintaining this tone without blending into a big gross mush
4: yeah yeah exactly like you think dark you just think oh uninter like not uninteresting but i mean color wise like it's not very bright there's not much differentiation well most cartoons
3: also it's like all about colors that pop
4: yes exactly and I, and I feel like there's colors that pop maybe on the characters and they use lighter colors like maybe in uh like bullock's coat is like a light tan and then they have a white shirt and like light pants on so like the characters will be kind of very bright yeah um, which i'm I guess they need to be to see, so you can see action. So you can see something. <laughs> yeah. So you can oh, see remember
3: happening. when that blob fought that blob <laughs> and then that other blob said he was the commissioner of blobs.
4: Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think I think they do such a good job with with dark tones and, and shadows and like silhouettes, especially like in this specific episode when uh, man bat or I'm sorry, uh, uh, Langstrom transforms. Yeah, please call
3: him a human. <laughs> Use his human name.
4: Uh, that's true. Uh He is human for part of the episode. Um, Before he transforms, there's kind of a shot of him, like, drinking.
3: uh, Like a vial of something?
4: Yeah, the serum, I guess. Right. Uh, And he, like, it's all done in shadow. And he kind of blends into the background, but you still see him moving. And it's this very emotive sort of, like, he just drinks this thing. And all of a sudden, he's, like, in pain and, like, kind of cowering and, and... they pull it off so well while everything is so dark and you think of like it's all in shadow and and they still manage to get like the emotion across and like the the what he's kind of going through during that moment yeah uh and it's great
3: i feel like this episode more than others even uh does that a lot a lot of the frames like there's the fall off into shadow there's like more of a vignetting of the image or not even a vignette but like there really is, like, creeping darkness. Like, the guy that's, like, practicing his radio voice or voiceover (laughs) on his, like, little mini cassette player (laughs) is, like, it's, like, kind of falling off into shadow. Or there's that shot of Bullock driving in his car. And, like, he's very, it's, like, it's not very bright and you can't see all of him. But it feels like the shadow, and maybe this is, you know, really reading into it, but, like, (laughs) Gotham is this, like, encroaching shadow that's, like, everybody's almost getting sucked into that darkness. Yeah. And you know, Batman lives in it yeah. and uses it to his advantage.
4: Yeah, I, I don't think... I love reading into stuff like that, so I think that's a very astute observation. <laughs> sure,
3: how much people actually thought about that versus yeah. like, oh, it'll be really cool tonally to do this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's fun to think that way.
4: Why not? Actually, one really cool color moment is, uh, uh, and I pointed it out very excitedly as we watch this, is when... Again, I'm sorry, Langstrom, not Man Bat. Uh. Please,
3: he's no monster. He's just an accidental beast.
4: Yeah, but he didn't want any of this. Maybe he did. Well, actually, he kind of did. <laughs> he kind of did. He mad
3: scientist did his way through a monologue to tell us he wanted it.
4: Yep, yep. So, well, you know. Anyway, you thinking. were saying... But he walks, uh, his lab setup is like very typical of the mad scientist setup with the beakers. And like, like really
3: old school Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, <laughs> yeah. 30s style.
4: Yes, yes. Uh, and it's, it's great because that's a, actually a very colorful component of the episode uh and there's there's also these sorts of vials and things boiling and they're all blue and pink and yellow and orange and and he like walks behind them at one point like right before transforming and it's such like a cool parallel of like seeing him walk behind these uh vials and tubes and like you see his face sort of morph and transform. Yeah, you and see like, the
3: monster in the man before he becomes the true monster.
4: Yes, yeah, and man, it's, it's one of the
3: coolest shots.
4: Yeah, oh, it's so cool, and 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 you see him go through this like metaphorical transformation, but it's it's actually all very colorful. Like all these like super bright colors come to, come into play, which contrasts super well with the rest of the episode, and it's it's almost like. Again, I'm gonna do a reading into it. Uh,
3: sure, read away.
4: <laughs> uh, like now he's coming into light. Like all, all, all of all of this was like in the darkness, like in mist shrouded and oh, mystery, yeah. like who the man bad. As is, he's and, telling
3: his story, yeah. everything becomes a little more colorful and yes, light.
4: Exactly. That's
3: interesting. Yeah. When we were rewatching it, you were saying that the sequence where he transforms legitimately scares you.
4: Yes, it's such a scary. I mean, and and. A lot of it is just his mouth, like and his teeth transforming and growing out. But like, I am I'm, I'm really not good with like scary things and horror movies and and all of that. But like, as a kid, like I don't know that I would have been like super okay with it. Like, it's it's actually kind of legitimately terrifying. Well, you kind of
3: hear the bones cracking, and it's yeah. it's like a very werewolfy transformation. Yes, but, like his jaw expands, and it's kind of like weirdly like jitters. Yeah, And I don't know if that was like a product of like the animation needing to be that way because it was like overseas or if it was like specifically like, no, we kind of want it to like shake and grow.
4: Yeah. I'm not entirely sure, but it like it it works. <laughs> it gets what it needs to get across really well. And, and he
3: it has just he has his pants on afterwards. And he
4: has his pants on afterwards. It I think it's my favorite thing about cartoons is that uh, it's like the best solution to like a strictly cartoon problem where they're like, well, uh, he's a creature.
3: Like any good Hulk.
4: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You like... keep
3: your pants after you rage out.
4: <laughs> we can't show anything below the belt. Uh, I think so even we'll his pants
3: weren't it. torn at the bottom. They like I think no. he still fit into his pants.
4: He's perfect, perfect. So either his, his pants.
3: pants were way too big to begin with, mm-hmm. or like the Man Bat transformation is really an upper body yeah. sort of thing. <laughs> upper body and feet, yeah. legs stayed totally the same, just <laughs> totally kind of changed color.
4: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Also, they look like jeans, which is funny to me because it makes me think that the, the doctor would just be like, "We're Chilling out in jeans. Hey, Dr. Like Langstrom, do you, you mind
3: wearing slacks or <laughs> yeah. something a little more professional to work? <laughs> uh, no, jeans for me. Jeans
4: for me. Uh... Yeah.
3: What other villain wears jeans? <laughs>
4: um, I don't know. I guess no Hulk.
3: Yeah, I guess the Hulk. Purple jeans.
4: Yeah, purple jeans. Yeah.
3: So let's talk about the episode. We've kind of like dove into it, and I forced you to talk about color immediately. Oh,
4: that's fine. So this
3: episode is about uh, Kirk Langstrom. Mm-hmm. A mad scientist kind of guy who turns out to be the man-bat. And it's interesting to me that the man-bat is the first villain they chose to showcase in the first episode they made.
4: Yeah. It like,
3: feels like such a deliberate choice not to go with the Joker or mm-hmm. Two-Face or Penguin or Riddler.
4: It's interesting that they used man-bat in the first episode because... Uh, <laughs> to kids who maybe didn't know Batman, it might be a little confusing. <laughs> Man Bat and Batman. I guess that's the idea. Right. They were
3: expecting Man Bat to show up in the second episode. They're like, Mom, you got to see this. Please yeah. record Man Bat the Animated Series for me. <laughs> There's an alternate universe where Man Bat the Animated Series is the most successful show. There's oh, Man Bat Beyond, <laughs> uh, Superman Bat, Man Bat oh. League on Lima Man Bat.
4: Yeah. That one really, that was a stretch. <laughs> that one went off the rails a little bit. But, yeah, the other uh, ones
3: were perfect.
4: Perfect! I'm, to me, they were perfect. Uh, remember, I'm here just to say yes to everything. Oh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's what you say to a host. Yes.
3: I don't want you to have any opinions. I bring you on a podcast to agree with me.
4: Yeah, absolutely. That's what I'm here for. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's very interesting that the first episode would be kind of like a, oh, we think this is the Batman's doing, but it's not.
3: Yeah, it was a fun, like, whodunit it. <laughs> And, you know, like, you get that, like, the police aren't on board with Batman. I think that was something that, like, mirrored, I think the Burton movies, they weren't on board. Or were they? I don't know. It's been a while since I've honestly seen Batman 89.
4: I don't think they were.
3: Either way, what I feel like people's perceptions of Batman before that was very, like, Adam West oriented, where, mm-hmm. like, Batman would waltz in, talk to Commissioner Gordon and mm-hmm. Chief O'Hara, and they'd mm-hmm. be like, Batman, we need your help. Uh, whereas here, it's kind of like, no, he does live in the shadows. Gordon's on his side, but he can't really stop an entire task force from going out there and hunting him down.
4: Yeah yeah
3: cranky old bullock
4: (laughs) cranky old bullock who is just a hundred percent like a 40s goon like (laughs) he just looks i'm i literally said to you does he does he go, like, rogue later on? Is he a bad guy or something? Just nope, he's you...
3: just a cranky man, probably with the saddest apartment you've ever seen.
4: Oh, I bet. You
3: know, it's an empty apartment with, like, one roach that just, like, is crawling everywhere.
4: They, like, split food. <laughs> They're <Yeah>. friends. Here you go.
3: Hey, thanks for giving me this cake, <laughs> crumb.
4: And he also has, like, a, one of those... Uh, Big old
3: stogie? Yeah. No, a toothpick.
4: Toothpick, yeah. Yeah just always chewing it he's like really meaty and weighty he just yeah I'm just you are such just a villain I it's talked with villain. uh
3: Harry and, and when we were talking 2 Face that like all the guys especially in like the beginning episodes of Batman they all feel like such big hefty like at mm-hmm. least like 400 pounds like Bullock's <laughs> yeah. got to be 600 if Harvey <laughs> Harvey Dent actually a couple of Harvey's yeah, Harvey Bullock and Harvey Dent in the same scene too. That was yes. one of the coolest things. Was that Very Harvey cool. Dent shows up? Yep, just for a line,
4: just for yeah, two seconds. But you totally get the impression that he's like someone really important, and like he's flipping
3: his coin he's in the corner, flipping his
4: coin, and you just kind of get like a, a I don't know what it's called technically, but like an upshot of him, like where you just like see him sort of. From a lower angle, so you're kind of like, oh, okay, this is like an imposing figure. Yeah, something's
3: intimidating about him. Yes, yeah. Uh, but it just made it that much stronger, like <laughs> when you see him turn into Two-Face, mm-hmm. it means something. Yep. Because there, there wasn't too much continuity, or at least like strict or overt continuity in the show. It mm-hmm. could be a show where you checked in, watched an episode, and you're like, great, <laughs> I don't need to know what's going on. Batman's a good guy, this person's the bad guy, done. Yep,
4: there yep. They were
3: all mini films. Beautiful. Speaking of bad guys... Doctor March.
4: Oh, <laughs> just the grumpiest. I just, I, I'm not a huge fan of terrible attitudes. So right off the bat, oh really, I like, this guy. Ugh. <laughs> in
3: general, you're
4: not. Yeah, in general.
3: Yeah, most people are. <laughs>
4: I don't know. Like, some people are, like, I bet Bullock would be, like, really charmed by, like, a terrible attitude. Yeah,
3: Bullock <laughs> invites Dr. March over to his apartment. <laughs> March is like, ooh, perfect, a third of a crumb of a cracker.
4: <laughs> ooh, and a roach. Oh, and good, a, a roach. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, and they smoke yeah. <laughs> the end of a joint together and complain about the world and yeah. their ex-wives.
4: Yeah, see, that's a match made in heaven. I feel like they would really enjoy bad. attitude. You
3: know, in Man the animated series, <laughs> Dr. March and Bullock are like a buddy a buddy scientist cop team.
4: Oh, that would be a great great show to watch.
3: March and bullock. March and bullock, <laughs> two guys you do not want to hang out with.
4: <laughs> and a cockroach. Yeah, maybe like five episodes of that and then yeah. be done.
3: <laughs> really? You don't think we need sixty five?
4: No. Maybe in maybe in that alternate universe, but not in this one.
3: <laughs> do you think you would have been tricked as a kid into thinking March was the villain? That he was the man bat?
4: Um, Maybe I mean maybe I would maybe I wasn't that smart when I was younger. Like maybe I feel like I wasn't it would have thinking. duped me. Really? Okay.
3: As, I mean, if I was, I was like six years old when it came out, mm.
4: <sighs> maybe I think I would have definitely been like, "Oh, this guy's definitely some sort of bad guy. Maybe he's responsible." Yeah, maybe. I I think, I mean, now watching it, he's definitely a foil. Oh, he's set up as that
3: red herring of like, oh, yeah. Yep. March is the villain.
4: Absolutely. I think at
3: one point Langstrom's like, oh, well, he's just a liar and a thief. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, just that?
4: (laughs) Which is why I work with him.
3: (laughs) I only work with liars, thieves, and my beautiful wife, Francine. Uh, Mm -hmm. Alfred had a different voice in this episode. This was before Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. was Alfred. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, this Alfred was pretty sassy and much colder.
4: So sassy! I, (laughs) I love very sassy characters, and I mean the fact that he's so dry and very unaffected by everything. For some reason, I really respond to that. Like when Batman brought Man Bat back to his Bat Cave. Wow! Say that five times fast. Man Bat,
3: pop, (laughs) Man Bat. Can't do it.
4: Uh. He, Alfred just was not, like, wasn't surprised in any way and, like, even made a joke when he walks in and sees uh, Bruce with Man Bat and just goes, hmm, dining for two, Mr. Bruce. Or, I'm sorry, Master Bruce. Something like that where uh, clearly unfazed and just clearly uh, (laughs) This man just
3: almost died, Alfred. (laughs) Yeah. Nice one.
4: I don't know. He's just so dry. And There's something so delightful.
3: satisfying about a guy who does not internalize any of the horrors that he's seeing. <laughs> yes. day. I guess that's how Alfred deals with it, too.
4: Yeah, like maybe it's his uh, like his uh, security blanket.
3: Like a coping mechanism.
4: Yeah.
3: Or, you know, maybe Batman needs somebody like that to keep him light.
4: Yes. Yeah, like Alfred is so, just as a character, he's so, I guess... Uh he's a caretaker so he's very like unselfish and very uh giving so I'm I'm sure that gets taxing maybe that's you know his dry sense of humor is how he I'm deals going to with have everything. to
3: clean up after the man who transformed from a bat into a human
4: <laughs> Well here we go just another day at the Wayne Manor
3: He <laughs> also canceled plans with Bambi
4: Oh yes Bambi the I told you this before, but for some reason, uh, Bambi and uh, Barbie have come up as like kind of goofy girl names, like Like for dipsy girls. Yeah, yeah. And I have been reading some Batman recently, so maybe that has something to do with it. But I was like, Bambi. Look, if I've you have two
3: this. B's in your name and you're a woman, you're gonna get the short end of the stick in the Batman universe. I
4: guess so. <laughs>
3: Hello, Barbara.
4: <laughs> Barbara. Yeah, Barbara doesn't get the short end. Of the she doesn't term.
3: have the E at the end. That's Bambi, true. Bambi. Barbie. That's true. Because Barbie is short for Barbara.
4: I think so. I mean, it makes sense. That oh I no, it's say... short for
3: Barbina. <laughs> Barbina um, Gordon
4: Barbina Gordon oh what a terrible name I'm yeah. glad it's good thing Barbara. it's not real yeah. <laughs> I'm glad it's by Barbara. the way that
3: joke's not real and the cartoon isn't a reality <laughs> <laughs> one of my other favorite shots is that long sweeping shot once the man bat has you know he's transformed into the man bat mm-hmm. in that kind of final climactic scene there's that beautiful long shot of like Batman trailing on his grapple attached yes. to the man bat's legs, mm-hmm. and he's like swooping and sweeping around the police blimp.
4: Yeah.,
3: uh, it's so beautifully shot. It's... like they were showing off in this episode.
4: Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, of course you want to come out with a bang, yeah. like really be visually exciting as well as like having a compelling story. But yeah, like the the shot. there's a lot of shots of a full moon in this like during the man bat batman like oh that one sweeping that
3: shot of i mean like it's that iconic shot of like the man bat dipping down and they both kind of like get et silhouetted yeah. over the moon <laughs> yes which i guess is mirrored in i know you haven't seen justice league unlimited no. No, but the final episode uh the last one of the last shots i think is uh Maybe it's uh, Justice League. I don't know. One of them, uh, they kind of mirror that moonshot. And they bring Kevin Conroy in to play an alternate part other than Batman. Because Kevin Conroy is the voice of that Mm -hmm. one of the blimp officers in the beginning.
4: (laughs) Oh, the lamest characters.
3: (laughs) Well, if you're a police officer in a blimp, you're not doing much.
4: That's true. You're
3: getting attacked by a giant (laughs) bat creature once every six months. And otherwise, you're sipping your coffee. Yeah.
4: Oh. Yeah, I think out of anywhere in Gotham, in the air in a police blimp would be my least favorite place to be.
3: Oh, absolutely.
4: (laughs) Especially having to talk to one of those guys.
3: Hey, uh, so... (laughs) uh, Just me and you for five hours. Oh, okay, well, another guy (laughs) shot himself next to me and now the blimp's going down.
4: I guess I'm dying. Get
3: another blimp to save this blimp.
4: (laughs) They would. Ugh. They would I love
3: the technology though. I love the weird yes. like the retro thirties kind of art deco look, uh, almost like impractical design, but like yes. so aesthetically pleasing, like that big yes. toaster of a SWAT team <laughs> yeah, truck.
4: That opens from the top down. Like, absolutely the most impractical thing, uh, but really cool looking. It
3: looks like a loaf of bread.
4: It does. It looks
3: like a loaf of bread and a toaster. Yeah. Now, reading into that...
4: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we won't.
3: (laughs) You commented on this saying there was a lot of bat-on-bat action.
4: (laughs) There is. There is so much bat-on-bat action, not only in front of the moon, but also through, like, a construction site where it's just 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 this like beautiful grid of like
3: what a cool set piece
4: yeah like it's it's uh what do you call those uh uh metal uh on a a construction site where you um you have to have construction workers actually building so you right you know where they sit with their
3: lunch boxes and yell (laughs) at women
4: exactly that thing uh like a lot of swerving in and out of it and again like most of it's in Complete darkness, and there's a lot of like dark blues and black, and just a lot of rich colors all combined together, but still like nestle this like action sequence. I guess perfectly. what I,
3: I heard that uh, when they sent it in, like the first episode, uh, like Bruce Tim said on in another interview, I think it was a fat man on Batman <laughs> with Kevin Smith, uh, he said that they had to brighten everything up because they were like, oh, this is past the legal limits of darkness or blacks. Like they're too dark and you need to raise them so people can see things on television.
4: Wow. Interesting. Yeah,
3: it was that dark to begin with.
4: Oh my gosh. I would have loved to see that. (laughs) I think
3: you wouldn't have seen anything. You
4: you might not have seen anything. It would
3: have been a radio play. (laughs) A time-consuming, very well-animated radio
4: play. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Nobody's ever gonna see this. The, the animators are dying from fumes that.
3: At least nobody... people
4: will see this. <laughs> oh, actually. Oh, we um... have something to tell you. <laughs>
3: uh,
4: speaking of thirties uh, and like kind of Art Decoy stuff that's kind of prevalent throughout the series, the this particular title card is very thirties, like. Very also film noir, like in the the title treatment and the credits mm-hmm. and just everything just kind of comes up like almost like an Orson Welles movie. Yeah, that something. font
3: is beautiful. Yes, and you're a bit of a typophile.
4: Yeah, I
3: imagine working with so many fonts.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I I enjoy fonts of all kinds, but it. it uh, yeah, that that font somehow just says like, old-timey movie very well, while also kind of being a fairly modern-looking font at the same time. I
3: wonder if they used standard fonts or if they were creating their own for these.
4: They probably were creating their own. It might have been somebody, like, actually drawing the font out and then just having it be there for the time. Yeah, it's beautiful.
3: And also, again, it was just, like, black and gray and white. Maybe like an off-white for the actual title itself, like the text.
4: And like soft lighting. Like the the background with like the bat. It was just like very softly lit, which I think also helps a lot for that sort of...
3: It looks so good. The title cards for these, I was really bummed when they did go to the new Batman Adventures and they didn't have title cards Mm.
4: anymore. Yeah, the title cards are just such like a a little they like went the extra mile like they didn't have to include them but
3: there are certain why shows not? now that have those like I know Adventure Time has title cards for okay. everything and that's one it, like it's so cool it's so fulfilling mm-hmm. and you can also like they approach them in like a different style sometimes they nice. feel a little more painterly
4: yeah yeah and like it's it's such like a because Batman is a detective uh it does add to that Sort of like noir, like detective. Yeah, it feels
3: uh, of the era. Yes, and he actually does detective work in this episode. Yes, he
4: does. I
3: think, but <laughs> after a while, they're like, "You get it. He's a detective." Yeah,
4: yeah. but you know,
3: he was wearing those w- goggles that look like a virtual boy,
4: or like Cyclops from the X Men. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's literally just like a visor with like red in the middle. <laughs> he uh, takes them
3: off and just shoots a beam at yeah. the man bat. Oh,
4: but yeah, it was. I was. Very pleasantly surprised to see him do actual detective work. Tweezing
3: some (laughs) Langstrom hair.
4: Yeah. And like, you know, scanning things and taking photos, which is awesome. And we get like the acrobatic, like great cape work. uh... Yeah.
3: Any well animated episode has great explosions Mm -hmm. and great cape work. And this one had both. There was that really cool sequence when, uh, you know, Bullock has sent his men in to like take, take Batman out in that building. And yeah. then it was like, Gordon was like, uh, nope, we had another robbery. You're wrong, but it was too late. Mm-hmm. And there was like some a huge explosion, but it was like this like wide, like almost, it looked like almost like tentacles of like explosives coming out of the window.
4: Yeah. And like, again, the moon was reflected on the building. And then all of a sudden you just see this crash and like Batman and this like basically SWAT team police guy are like flying out of the window and like the smoke just comes out and it's, yeah, like everything again was sort of dark. And then as they come out the window, it's like bright orange, red, yellow explosions. And like they're falling out. It's great.
3: I wonder Beautiful. if the moon was a practical concern because they were like, "Cool, we want to have this show take place at night. How are we going to justify that much light? It's got to be a full, bright moon every single time. Plus, yeah. it looks cool. It's like a very really, like monstrous piece of imagery."
4: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and I think too they, I think the I think the moon had to have been a consideration because there's a lot of great shadows of windows (laughs) and like the the streets are finally lit i guess if we want to get technical but uh uh otherwise i couldn't see like that much light yeah there were a lot of
3: expressionistic kind of like slanted windows and like creepy angles on things yeah yeah a lot more dynamic boarding yes i don't even know what i just said (laughs) Dynamic. (laughs) a lot more dynamic boarding
4: well too i think with like any sort of comic book-related character, the instinct is to, uh, at least on, in a comic book, is to make every panel act its, in its own way and have everything be very Right, draw dynamic. your eye
3: specifically to certain things in the page, yeah, too. Yeah,
4: exactly. So there's a flow there. So, of course, like for this animated series, they also had to create some sort of flow and, and kind of... Um, make every frame interesting or every cut too interesting um
3: and these earlier episodes i feel like favor those angles much more than later episodes mm do i think later they they get more efficient with their storytelling but Mm -hmm. maybe lose some of the icing on the cake shots got it the composition is like a little more straightforward
4: Mm -hmm. too many too many artists died
3: So many artists died, they are like, no. Yeah, yeah,
4: you know, what you have to do for your art. <laughs> also feel like in this episode, it was nighttime constantly.
3: Oh, in most of the show, it's nighttime constantly. <laughs>
4: like, they're never out. Like, even during the day, it's nighttime out.
3: Gotham City is 22 hours of night and two hours of daytime.
4: <laughs> uh, it's like
3: the Alaska of the comic book verse. Yeah,
4: it seems that way. Oh, one more thing about the scenery painting, uh, or the scene painting, uh, especially of the background variety. Um, when Batman drives out of his bat cave, at, like the beginning of the episode, those uh, backgrounds are awesome they're amazing they look like painted
3: backgrounds yes and they do they use that a lot
4: yeah yeah and and i think they are painted in the same way that the clouds at the beginning are just
3: think like that shot that frontal shot of those three cars like, driving on the freeway in this episode, mm-hmm. and it looks like they just animated the wheels and the background behind it, but I think they were, like, static painted cars. Yeah. That style looks so cool.
4: It's so cool. And, again, the moon is in the corner, so you get that. You're really
3: into this moon. Oh uh,
4: Yeah, I mean, it's the, one of the brightest things in the, on the background, so I think maybe that's why I noticed it. But, yeah, like, it's just really... The background artists who died for this episode are killing it. Like
3: they're literally killing they're
4: it. They're literally killing it and themselves, it's great. it's beautiful. And you never think about like I, I, I read a lot of comic books, and, and sometimes they have background artists, or at least they used to have background artists come in and do the backgrounds, and then you'd have the big guns come in and do all the characters. And that stuff is not only super tedious. And like requires a great attention to detail, but like s- sometimes ends up looking like super cool, like if not the coolest part of like the whole piece. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it,
3: they're beautiful paintings. Yeah. I think you can see some of the background art without anything online, like without any of the stuff in front of it. Ooh. Yeah.
4: That's great. I, there, I, I know
3: there's Google some that. at a site called World's Finest. Okay. Um, I'm sure you can find it. Bat- Google Batman background <laughs> art and let me know what you find
4: yeah. waste waste about three hours of your day just looking at cool backgrounds that's I don't know if that's a waste <laughs> it's not it's not a waste you're right uh...
3: that sounds like a great day or yeah. a great 3am to 6am for <laughs> yeah. me you know maybe before I go to bed I'm just gonna like dick around on the internet a little bit I'll just look at a couple things about Batman Yeah. Uh, oh it's 6am <laughs>
4: Oh, what hat? Is the sun coming out? Yeah, now,
3: why do I only have pants on? <laughs> Perfectly manicured pants. Can't manicure pants. Whatever. I'm the man bat,
4: baby. <laughs> it's just you at 6 a.m. Just yelling to anyone who will listen. I'm the man bat. I'm the man bat. Uh, no, you're you-
3: Langstrom.
4: <laughs> you crash through the window and then... Everyone comes in to figure out where you've gone and the last thing they see on your computer is uh, Google search for Batman You're describing my
3: pilot treatment of Man Bat the Animated Series. I don't know if you've read it, but that's exactly no. how it begins and it stars me <laughs> as the world's worst Man Bat.
4: That sounds delightful. I'm here to say yes to everything.
3: <laughs> Great. I'm glad that you authentically 100% like it.
4: Absolutely.
3: Thanks for coming on and talking about the Man Bat with
4: me. No problem. This was great. Thank you for having me.
3: Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. We're not leaving. <laughs> How about that? Isn't Roxy cool? Man, she's cool. She's a big old Harley Quinn fan, so I imagine she'll be back on the podcast when we do a Harley episode. But now it's time for an interview with...
0: Today's guest. Andrea Romano.
3: Guys, this interview was a pure delight. Andrea has been a personal hero of mine since before I even knew what a voice director did. I think she's a big reason why I've always wanted to work in voiceover and animation and she was a huge part of my childhood. She really shaped the cartoons that I watched and and what I thought was funny and what I thought was good and the quality of what something could be. Her IMDb page is a testament to how hard she's worked and the truly amazing thing is it's so evident that she puts attention and care into each and every project. I mean, she's as much a part of shaping this series as the creators of the show, and I feel like I only scratched the surface with her in this interview. Uh, I mean, I could have talked to her for hours, honestly. Uh, but I've talked enough, and I think she talks a lot, and I think you're going to enjoy it. Please, enjoy Andrea Romano. Andrea <laughs> Romano. I'm sitting here face to face with Andrea Romano, one of my personal heroes, just to make it weird off the bat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for that. Uh, But it's a good kind of weird. Thank you. Uh, So, you are the voice director and casting director for Batman the Animated Series? I was for that series. As well as Superman the Animated Series? True. Batman Beyond? True. Justice League? Yes. Justice League Unlimited? Guilty. And so many other fantastic shows.
2: Thank you very much.
3: Welcome to the podcast.
2: Nice to be here.
3: So, I guess I I just wanted to dig in and start talking about Batman the Animated Series. Uh, this, This show obviously holds a special place in my heart and in so many people's hearts. Mine too. Why do you think it took off the way it did?
2: Up to that point... I think most people's uh, exposure to Batman um other than the comic books as far as any kind of moving picture was the Adam West live action uh, 1960s series which was a very silly uh interpretation of that world and Batman the animated series that we made was a very dark version much more true to the comic book um mentality I think um so That, I think, was very appealing to fans who thought of Batman as a dark character, not a comic character. And um, Michael Usland, who's a major part of this world of Batman, the uh, producer, um, he was responsible for a great deal of the darker Batman making his way into the world. And Michael wrote a terrific book that everybody who has not read it should get it right away, run right out and get it. And I'm not I don't make a cent on this, by the way. Stop listening. (laughs) Go get the book. It's called The Boy Who Loved Batman. And um, it's a wonderful story about he, as a little boy, read the comics and loved it so. And then when Batman, the um, Adam West series, came out, he was, no, no, this isn't the Batman that I read. This isn't the Batman I know and love. This is so, this is silly. This is not. And he was instrumental in Warner Brothers creating a very dark Batman, both in the live action movies, in our animated projects. And then, of course, we'll talk more about this later, too, I think, but. We did some of the more comic, and not to confuse comics and comic, um, like uh, Batman the Brave and the Bold was a more comic version of Batman. Batman the Animated Series was dark, and it was dark on many levels. It was dark in its pure animation. It was the first time in, in my knowledge that instead of using white paper for a background and drawing dark backgrounds, they used black paper and drew on top of that so it gave the whole cartoon a very dark look That's which a, is
3: very simple but revolutionary truly it changes everything
2: it was um i i, I believe it was eric gadomsky who mm-hmm. created that idea and it was all of us were like w- what and then of course we were well, why didn't anybody ever think of that before but when was there ever such a dark cartoon made before really batman the animated series was really groundbreaking in that way
3: yeah prior to this what were you working on
2: Um, I had been doing Tiny Toon Adventures for Warner Brothers, Animaniacs, Pinky and the Brain, Freakazoid. Those were all Steven Spielberg Presents shows, which were great fun to work on. And I do love the silly, light shows that have music in them. And, um, And then I got into a lot of the action shows. It was Batman, the Animated Series, and Superman, and Justice League, just as you listed before. And then I discovered after a while that I started to miss some of the more comic, silly things. And so I was delighted when, years later, I was offered shows like... SpongeBob SquarePants, which was kind of harkens back to Animaniacs and Pinky in the Brain. It's a very like, like Looney Tunes vibe. Too. Very much, very much. But the when I was I was working with Bruce Timm, and I believe when I first met Bruce, the producer of Batman the Animated Series, was I think he was a storyboard artist on Tiny Toons, mm-hmm. and so we started at Hanna Barbera. I mean, I'm sorry, we started at. Warner Brothers Animation together, and that would have been like 1989, and that was when Warner Brothers Animation first came into being. It didn't exist before that for TV, Warner Brothers TV Animation. And so, um, we'd been making very silly cartoons, and I'd known Bruce a bit. And then he came to me and said, "Would you like to direct this series?" And I was like, "Sure." I don't know a lot about Batman because girls, you know, the age of reading comic books back when, when I was a young girl we didn't really read comic books. If we did, they were the romance comic books or maybe right, the... they ar- were very
3: gender specific.
2: That, or they were, you know, Archie and Jughead and all those mm-hmm. those, the, those silly ones, but they weren't, you know, girls didn't really read Batman and the, and the more intense action ones. I don't want to say all girls, but I didn't certainly. And um, so it was for me quite a change in energy uh, as far as a completely different type of vocal track we were looking for. And as you watch the first say, 13 episodes of Batman the Animated Series, and then watch how the series evolved, you'll see that it did take on an even darker tone and an even more realistic tone and not broad and not cartoony. And that was a conscious decision made by Bruce Timm. And I had to really learn how to do this differently because I wasn't used to doing cartoons so realistically. And uh, even casting-wise, I had to really pay attention because I was casting some of the more, what would you say, not Goonie, but the the more broad voiceover actors. Sure. And I had to go for much more on camera actors who could boost their energy just a little. And it's been my experience that with most actors, actors who have had stage experience that are good actors, they understand animation energy, which is why I thought it was so interesting that you interviewed my friend Murphy Cross, because Murphy made that transition from, and having had no voiceover experience really before that, she made that transition very well because she does have stage experience. Even Batman, Batman himself, Kevin Conroy, was a Juilliard-trained actor and had done lots of work on stage, before, and he certainly had some on-camera success as well, but he was a stage actor, and so that slightly elevated energy, that's not Bugs Bunny, that's not Daffy Duck. It's not that broad. It's not that crazy, but it isn't just live action energy, which is so small and so contained because that's done with a camera right up in your face. Mm-hmm. It has to be bigger than that. It has to be like a stage where you have to project a little more and everything's slightly bigger.
3: Yeah, that's interesting because I always felt like the voice reads were very much a heightened realism. Correct. Like it felt very grounded, but mm-hmm. it was still a cartoon. It was still honoring the voiceover process. That's
2: great. Nice of you to say. But my, uh, my point about how the show evolved, every cartoon series evolves. You listen to the first few episodes of The Simpsons and you listen to them now, they're different. Their voices were different. Homer Simpson sounded completely different. Mr. Burns, so many of the characters. I think probably Nancy Cartwright as Bart and um, Pam. Uh, Pam Hayden. As uh, no, no, uh, I'm sorry. Yardley Smith mm-hmm. as uh, Lisa are probably the only two voices that are absolutely consistent throughout the series. Everybody else, the voice evolved, the animation evolved, and so I use that as an example because it's such a successful well, series. Well, Dan
3: Castellaneta, his originally his Homer was very warbly and kind absolutely.
2: of large like large. That's right. That's right. And and really not um, not nearly as endearing as mm-hmm. he ultimately made that character, and um, and that's purely that's really charming the way they've do, they've evolved. Those voices, but Batman the animated series. I remember, and there's an. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about specific episodes, but I remember in the first the first couple of them, we would look at Bruce, and I would look at them afterwards and go, "Oh, if we could have redone that, if we could have fixed that, we wouldn't have had all those soldiers coming out of the, you know, that big thing that looks like a toaster, which is kind of a big truck. Yeah. And they go, hut, 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 hut. we probably wouldn't have done that because it was a little bit goofy. If we had thought about it ahead of time, we probably would have done something where they w- mouths weren't moving, and they could have just exited. Would have just fanned out that's right. realistic, Exactly. And they wouldn't have been talking to each other and done Walla there. It would have been just silent soldiers marching off the truck, standing in position, waiting for their orders. But, you know, we learned as we went along. And and you do want to learn as you go along. You don't want to just keep doing the same thing over and over again because it gets boring. You want to evolve.
3: Oh, mm. and it's amazing that you had so many episodes to play with, too. We sure did. I you mean, had, you had to evolve for yeah. it to stay as good as it is. And I think yeah. that's why the show still holds up. Cool. I'm glad. Uh, when you, so dialing it going back a little bit mm-hmm. so when you first did uh, that first day that you worked on Batman the mm-hmm. animated series uh, how did you prepare
2: um well casting wise it was very difficult and that was way before we actually recorded the first episode because Casting an iconic character like Batman is an enormous responsibility, and I took it very seriously. I knew that this was, we were trying to create something truly special. And the hopes always for those kinds of projects is that it will have a long life. And so you think about, okay, what vocal sound do I want to hear for 65 episodes, for 100 episodes, for 300 episodes, however many you ultimately get to make? Mm-hmm. What voice do I want to keep hearing? What voice are people going to accept as Batman, And also we made a decision early on that we wanted Batman and Bruce Wayne's voices to be different. We didn't want that to be the exact same voice. As the series evolved, you'll see that there was a smaller and smaller and smaller difference. And ultimately there wasn't much difference at all between Batman and Bruce Wayne. But in the beginning, they're very different. There was much
3: more of a duality. Much more. It was kind of like a light and playful Bruce That's Wayne right. playboy. That's
2: right. Exactly. Flippant. Mm -hmm. You know, nothing really matters. And um, so I sent out a casting and this was long before the times of computers. And so the casting was sent out to all the agents in town. And I called them and explained what they were looking for and to make a very long story and a very long process much shorter. I heard well over 500 auditions for the voice of just Batman, not to mention the other 15 characters we had as regulars on that series, including Bullock and, you know, the hit Mayor Hill and all those various characters. But just for Batman, I heard 500 auditions. I called back meaning I actually auditioned myself in person uh, over 100 actors.
3: And that seems very atypical.
2: Very. That was an enormous. Again, because it was such a huge project. And then um, Bruce and I narrowed it down to about four or five actors that we were like, well, he could play it, he could play it, but nobody we had truly fallen in love with. And I always want to fall in love with the main characters. Sure. I do. I want to absolutely be in love with them. And so uh, I had used every resource that I had to find different actors for this because I didn't want it to be just reach out to only the rank and file voiceover actors that we all already knew. I wanted to expand it to stage actors and stuff. And I spoke with at the time a roommate of mine, Anthony Barneo, a very talented on-camera casting director. And I said, do you know any actors who you think of might be good voices for a dark Batman, and he knew what I did for a living, and he was familiar, and he said, you know, there's this great actor Kevin Conroy, and I said, well, let's bring him in on these callbacks and see if, you know, he's got anything, and he came in. So
3: he didn't even audition for it the first I round? I don't believe
2: he read through the first round, I don't believe he did, and he came in, and he asked a couple of questions, very intelligent questions, really to-the-point questions, not like walking in and saying, so what do you want? It really was, you know, Andrea, Bruce, I kind of see this story as, it's kind of a Hamlet story. It's the, 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 the kid who's lived through a tragedy of, you know, a father or or someone, a, a young man who's lived through a tragedy. His father has died for Bruce Wayne. His father and mother were murdered. Revenge, very similar Hamlet's. I thought, well, that's a really interesting take on this character. And Andrea and Bruce, how much difference do you want between Batman and Bruce Wayne? Well, this and this and this. And so then he opened his mouth. And it was one of those wonderful casting moments that you can only pray for, where Bruce and I just looked at each other and went, oh, my God. Lord, there it is. We have completely found it. Without having to really manipulate him, his basic understanding and tone was exactly right. And then I thought, let me just mess with him a little bit and direct him and see what happens when I give him a direction that seems bizarre or whatever. And he took directions so beautifully and never questioned anything that we asked him to do. And I've told a story quite often about um, sweet Kevin, uh, about how when he first started working, he didn't have to do in his previous career a tremendous amount of what we call fight walla, impacts, throwing punches, throwing a battering all those things that require sounds, not words. And so whenever you set a level, and you know what that is, you get on a microphone and you start talking in the level you're going to be speaking to so the engineer can set the level so you don't blow out the speakers or blow out the microphone or blow out the engineer... And so I 'd say, Kevin, you know, say a couple lines of dialogue, and then give me a couple you know hur, uh, hur, those sounds and i I was so in love with him at this early stages, so I still am, but deeply in love with him, and I just found him sexy, sexy, sexy that really and I thought Batman had to be sexy he 's got all these women characters that kind of even though they're criminals, they are completely attracted.
3: are just circling around him. They're
2: attracted. They're yeah. totally attracted to him. He's a magnet, a chick magnet for bad girls, I- including Bruce Wayne was also a chick magnet for bad girls. Mm-hmm. And so Kevin would give his level. And after three or four sessions when we started to get more comfortable with each other and he understood my humor, my jokes, I'd say, OK, Kevin, give me you know a line or two of dialogue. And he'd say, blah, 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 Commissioner Gordon, blah, blah, blah. And then I'd say, OK, give me a couple of impacts. <laughs> <laughs> and then I would say, and now say. Andrea and in Batman's voice he would say Andrea and I would melt well, and then during we'd...
3: Mask of the Phantasm you got him to say that a bunch
2: exactly right and that line was actually written for me by Paul Dini because of this instance of me always asking him to say really? Andrea and to this day when Kevin and I work I get his level the same way and without having to ask for it he'll say Andrea and then it got to be a joke because all the cast members would also do it. So the Mari Devon, the girl who played Summer, Gla- Summer Gleason, the uh, reporter, yeah. she would say, Andrea. And then everybody else, Bob Hastings, who played Commissioner Gordon, Andrea. Everybody would say Somebody's Andrea. Somebody's
3: got to go back and dig through those files Truly. and do a super cut of every Andrea <laughs> from every character
2: who that was on Batman. That would be very funny. Unfortunately, we weren't always rolling on those because it was just the engineer setting the level. But that would be a very Damn. funny idea. <laughs>
3: It'll be a two hours of the same word.
2: <laughs> there was a lot of them. Make me laugh.
3: So, uh, did you tell Kevin the minute he stepped out of the booth, it was like, you're cast, or was it like, no? It you over, can't talk to the network? Right,
2: exactly, you have to, and what you had to also do was put his voice against the other characters that we'd already decided we wanted, how does he sound against Commissioner Gordon, how does he sound against Catwoman, how does he sound against, does it sound like he's in the same world as those people, and so it was very shortly thereafter, because we were down to the wire, everybody else was cast, and we were trying to find our Batman. Oh, Batman
3: was the last voice.
2: Sure, because it's, you know, The crucial. most important. And, and and the hardest, just playing the hardest, um, and uh, and as Kevin developed, as we said with Bruce Wayne, I, I found that the distinction was was too much the Bruce Wayne and the Batman, and you know we were able to get away with that uh, much more realistic sounding Bruce Wayne because it was still a little bit cartoony at the top, and we wanted it that way, we asked for it that way. But then as we went along, we thought this is a more sophisticated series than that. It could we can play to a smarter audience, and I think our audience was very smart, and they. I think we're receptive to the idea that Bruce Wayne doesn't have to sound like a really spoiled brat, rich guy, completely different, faky because it got faky. Mm-hmm. Not because the acting was fakey, because, but because the voice, producing that voice... Wasn't naturally Kevin Conroy. It was just whereas Batman is kind of Kevin Conroy. Kevin has been stopped in a line at a movie theater and had someone say, "Are you Batman?" And
3: recognized as Batman. Yep. that's
2: incredible. Yeah. And, and and he doesn't always talk that deep, and you know, but it, there's a tone about his voice that's very recognizable, and he does get stopped. You know, now he's he's more recognizable physically because so many DVD extras and interviews and comic cons and stuff. But this was before that even that people would stop him, and he has some great stories about like homeless people and giving them a dollar and them going, really? hey, aren't you Batman? That's incredible. I know. <laughs>
3: well, as a six-year-old, I emulated his voice terribly <laughs> with action figures.
2: Six. Six, yep. Uh, no, I don't feel old. No, 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 I don't feel I mean, feel you
3: old. know, uh, as a 47-year-old, uh, <laughs> man, I was,
2: uh, <laughs> Well, you know track. what? This is something very cool about that series was that it did appeal to a large range of ages. It, it was very popular with... Um, young kids and it wasn't too horribly violent there was a little bit of blood in the first episode mm-hmm. and then we didn't have any blood for a long time and every what, now and then it would pop up that's right and, and we really had to get like special okay to do that and also you'll notice that we didn't kill any characters for a long time in the series and what we'd have to do is what we termed keep alive groans so somebody would get hit <laughs> really hard by Batman fall into the ground and then so it would sound like this i would get punched hit the ground uh, uh, and then we have to have them go, uh, uh, so that they weren't dead because they would they would remain prone and not move, and it looked like he killed them. Sure. And so we didn't want a cartoon where Batman was just killing, you know, henchmen. So we uh, we were very careful. So it was kid friendly in that way, but adults liked it also. Adults who had read the comic books as children and were looking for another Batman because it had been quite a while since the Adam West Batman had been around, and so. It was. It it did appeal to a large audience. Yeah, I felt like
3: it's. I've been able to relate to so many people across an age range. Like in like a comedy community, I feel like I I hang out with a bunch of different people and older and younger. This show has always been accessible to everybody uh, whether they watched it way later or you know original on its original run and they were whatever in college or post-college
2: well I I see people at various cons and events and they'll come up and say Andrea thank you so much Batman the animated series absolutely changed my life and now I have my son watching it is changing his life and I want to say thank you because it just reminds me how old I am. But I, truly, I okay, am complimented. Thanks, yeah, no, I, I'm so complimented. I love that I had some effect on someone so much so that they want their kids to see it, too. That was how I felt about Looney Tunes, which was it was a wonderful series and it was good for adults and children, something they could enjoy together where the kids didn't get all the jokes that the parents did and vice versa. There were things that appealed to the kids that the parents didn't find as funny. There were the old Jay Ward cartoons, Fractured Fairy Tales mm-hmm. and Rocky and Bullwinkle and the same thing, the humor was, both for kids and for parents, something they could sit down and watch together. And that was really nice. I, I think that any time you can make a series that appeals to a large range of, of ages like that is, is very good.
3: Did you grow up loving animation? Uh, or did it, did you feel like you fell into it uh, naturally? Biggest
2: animation fan ever. Just loved it from... You know, I'm one of eight kids. I grew up on Eastern Long Island, and... Um, I remember we all had chores because with that many kids everybody had to help you know chip in and so mom and dad both worked and the first thing I would do getting home from school I think I got home around 2.40. And then by 3 o'clock, all the afternoon cartoons would come on. That was when afternoon cartoons aired then. It wasn't always constant access to cartoons like there is now. There were certain times of day, Saturday morning and weekday afternoons. Yep,
3: I, Saturday mornings. Yep,
2: And so uh, I would s- sit in my, on my, in my mom's and dad's bedroom and watch cartoons on this old TV, this wonderful old TV, when I should have been doing chores. And we had a Bluestone driveway, which is small, pebble-like uh, Bluestones. And I would hear my mom's car drive in and go oh man I was supposed to be folding the clothes and so I would turn the TV off because I was watching cartoons turn the TV off and now here's how we always got busted when we were young because old TVs when they cooled down they ticked And my mom would come in and put her stuff down in her bedroom, and she'd hear the TV ticking and know that I had not been doing my chores. <laughs> Only one thing is folded, and it's ticking right now. <laughs> and so many, many years later, I said, Mom, did you ever think that that would pay off? Actually, my watching all those cartoons would actually pay off. We got a little chuckle out of that.
3: What were your favorites? Huckleberry Hound.
2: Huckleberry Hound was my absolute number one favorite cartoon, and I'll tell you why. It took me years to figure out why. Aside from the fact that I did love that simple, wonderful Hanna-Barbera animation where it was very sort of thick lines. It was limited animation, you know, so it was 10 frames per second. Mm -hmm. It had that wonderful comfort of the character would run across a scene and you'd see the same vase uh, on the same table over and over and over again. There was something very calming about that. But what I loved about Huckleberry Hound, aside from his voice and his accent, which was very friendly, was the fact that, as far as I remember, that was one of the first times that I was aware of a character breaking the fourth wall, which meant he talked to camera. So he'd be in the middle of the cartoon, and then he would turn and look at me, me personally, Andrea Romano, through the TV, sitting on the floor with my little bowl of cereal or whatever I had. And, And so I thought Huckleberry Hound just knew me knew me personally. And so a thousand years later, when I was working at Hanna-Barbera as the casting director, I met Doss Butler, the voice of Huckleberry Hound. And, you know, he was a tiny, tiny little man, about as tall as I am, and I'm just five foot. And I shook his hand and said, Mr. Butler, it is such an honor to meet you. I mean, stunningly talented human being, crazy good voiceover actor, wonderful actor, great voiceover actor. And I said, I have to tell you that my favorite character in the whole world was Huckleberry Hound, and he opened his mouth and spoke to me as Huckleberry Hound, and I instantly cried. I just cried right there in front of him. I was, you know, a 25-year-old woman just weeping in the hallway at Hanna-Barbera. That's a childhood friend, though. Well, it was, I was suddenly, uh, you know how like when you'll smell a smell and it will zip you back in time? Mm -hmm. This was a similar situation where I was suddenly transported back to the feeling of being six years old again. It was quite remarkable, and he couldn't have been a kinder man or a more talented uh, teacher and uh, really wanted new voiceover actors to do well as they came up in the field. And he was working with me. I was a casting director. And the fact that I was able to cast him in things just was ridiculous to me. Crazy good that I got to meet these people. Mel Blanc and Dawes Butler and Don Messick and all those early Hanna-Barbera cartoons were my... Introduction to cartoons. Certainly, the Looney Tunes cartoons as well, the, the classic Warner Brothers cartoons, and then the um, the Jay Ward cartoons. The Bullwinkle and Rocky and Bullwinkle. And, and my favorite of those were the Fractured Fairy Tales. Oh, me too. Oh, just wonderful. They're still great. They still hold up. They had those corny little end lines. Oh, that yeah. would, And I had a great, a great good fortune of working with many of the people who worked on them, Hans Conried and June Foray. And I got to meet and work with so many wonderful actors. I'm, I'm so grateful. And, and because I was such a big fan, that's really had a major impact in my life.
3: Is there anything from those Fractured Fairy Tales or Huckleberry Hound that you can imagine that you like pinpointed uh, as something you brought to your current work or you've been able to apply as a lesson to working on things now?
2: Well, there was a joyousness about those cartoons. I absolutely got the feeling that the actors were having a good time doing the work. And so that is absolutely something that I have brought into my work, which is I feel that if we're not having a good time in the recording studio the track is going to sound labored and not flowy. And so I try to create an environment where actors feel really comfortable and we have a lot of fun, and then I have to crack the whip because i got to get the work done. But I'm good at that. I'm good at, like, okay, okay, stay with me, you guys, stay with me, and we'll all laugh, laugh, laugh together, and then, okay, back to work. And so that aspect of joy I tried to, to, to bring from those cartoons that I watched into the work that I still do today.
3: And that brings me to asking you about your process, about how an actual voice record goes in the moment. So from what I know, and this is, you know, just me reading about it, uh, you you do prefer having everybody in the room at the same time, which seems so much better. You can connect with people.
2: (laughs) On so many levels. I... Let me go back and talk about how I prep a sure. script. So um, yeah, let's say that, Okay. So let's say the the casting is already done, whether I'm casting it or I'm working at Nickelodeon where they have a remarkably wonderful casting department, so I don't have to cast there. I just come in and direct. But I get the script ahead of time and I prep it by um you know, the the script is sent to me, it's called the shooting script. It has all the stage direction as well as all the dialogue. And so I highlight the bits of information that I think it's important for me to tell the actor—they don't know what ki- they don't need to know. What kind of camera pan or what kind of wipe we're going to do, or how it's going to be lit, or what that is. But they need to know they're running through this scene. They need to know that. Hugh! is them leaping from one rock to another. They need to know that information. So I'll, I'll highlight that on the script. And in a perfect world, I'll be able to bring in all the actors together at the same time, and we'll be able to do what's called a table read or a rehearsal. And so before we even record a single bit of dialogue, we all sit down together, and this is probably the most fun part of the process, is that's when the time when everybody jokes around and ad libs and makes the characters talk dirty and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and so we, I, I read those highlighted stage directions to the actors and then they read through the dialogue. And so that's the time when I might say, you know what, this is really a much more intimate scene. The two of you are going to be right next to each other so you can really bring that down. Or they're going to stage this, you're way over there in that corner and that guy's going to be way over there and there's going to be a lot of stuff going on between you so you're really going to have to yell that line and those kinds of notes and they'll, the actors will make their notations. And um, typically not indicated in the stage direction, or sorry, typically indicated in the stage direction but not in the dialogue, is all the extra stuff, like the character gasps. It won't have it indicated as dialogue. It'll just be hidden there. So I have to write it in. I'll tell the actor, okay, before this line, you're going to go, <gasps> and then say your line of dialogue. Or you you trip and fall, and then you say the line. So, <clears throat> And then say the line dog. So all that stuff gets written in by the actor during the rehearsal process. Then we go to the microphones and sit down. And without me interrupting, ideally, they get to play a whole scene out. Now, they've already rehearsed the whole thing. Any guest roles that have not been in before, we set the voices during the rehearsal. Uh, And then at that point, we all start recording. They can't overlap. This is purely a technical Uh, reason why they can't overlap when we read the track afterwards they have to all be clean so that they animate so that they do what's called exposure sheets and make sure the voice the mouth flaps match which character is speaking if multiple voices come in they can't tell which mouth flap to do so um they may overlap the tracks later so that they actually do interrupt each other the characters but the actors can't do that so during the ensemble record why that's so key is a major part of acting is reacting. So when I'm talking to you like this, you're going to respond in a certain way. If I'm talking to you like this, you're going to respond probably in a different way. And if I'm talking to you like this, you're going to respond in yet a third way, right? Right. If we do it right there on the spot together, I can tell if the way you responded is appropriate. If I record you three weeks from now after recording myself, I have to do many, many, many more takes with you. To find out how it cuts with mine. And to play every single take I did three weeks earlier would take so much time. We just do multiple takes with you. So, ensemble record is really far faster and requires far fewer takes than when I record actors separately. Now, voiceover is this great field where you don't have to be there in the room at the same time. We can make it work to record you individually. So, if you get sick, or if you've got a wonderful on camera gig, or if you're cast in a play in New York, we can record you separately if we have to, but it's not ideal. So you get that acting and reacting thing. You also get, whenever somebody ad-libs something, that may change the line that follows. And if I have you both in the room at the same time, we can figure out how to get that response to be appropriate to whatever the ad-lib was. And so that makes it faster as well. It's just also really fun. It's really nice to have that energy, to be in that energy. There's a camaraderie to it. I'm working on a series now, a brand new series for me, um, and it's only a few episodes into recording, and they were not using a professional voice director before. And not to toot my own horn in any way, but one of the things that I've learned how to do after all these years is deal with all the things that there are in a recording session, which is all the actors, the engineer, the person who's keeping the log, the producer, the writer, however many people may be in the room, all of that I have to pay attention to. For a brand-new voice director who isn't really a voice director, maybe they're a writer who's going to take over the voice directing uh, responsibilities, or maybe it's an animation director who's going to do it, or maybe even a producer who's going to do it, it's hard for them to pay attention to all those things. It's a lot of splitting your attention and keeping a very fun, wonderful atmosphere in the room. And so they were recording actors singly, one at a time. And so then they were just running into a lot of trouble, and they came to me and said, will you come do this series for us? I said, sure, let's get a session together where all the actors can be in there together. And the actors were so grateful for it because they had no idea what any of the other characters sounded like. Oh, wow. So they were acting in a vacuum. They were not knowing what, you know, their best friend was supposed to sound like. They had been told who the actor was. Maybe they knew who that was. Maybe they didn't. They had no idea what the voice was they were doing. And so this was a wonderful opportunity for them to all, even if they don't ever record again together, at least they know what this other guy sounds like and that girl sounds like and that character sounds right, like. Right, they
3: so can fill in the blanks. That's and-
2: right. And so that's why I feel ensemble record is really good. It 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 also makes my job a lot easier in that we can tell right away whether a scene is working. And, and why I like to do the table read or the rehearsal is every 22-minute piece, every 44-minute piece, however long, 11-minute piece, they have their arcs. Right. So Mm -hmm. dramatically, there's an arc and you've got to know where each scene fits into that arc. So you don't want to peek out too soon and then have nowhere to go when you get to the actual top of that arc. And so when we rehearse it. We can all see where that, how that flows and where we have to get to in order to make this piece make sense.
3: Right, because you could get narrow sighted just isolating a scene, and it's like, great, we want to hit a peak in every single scene. It's that's just, no, right. That's...
2: that's right. Then you have too many peaks, and, and then the real peak doesn't have any impact. And the other thing, which is purely selfish, is I'm very fortunate that I work on a lot of projects at the same time, rarely ever less than five projects at any given time and each one of those projects probably has at least three episodes that I'm working on at the same time so that's about 15 different scripts Man. I have in my head all uh, at one time and without a rehearsal I may not necessarily remember exactly everything that's going on in this piece so the rehearsal you know, brings me back into that that moment if i it also gives me the chance to check with the producer or the writer or the story editor or whatever now how does this fit into our whole story not just that particular 22 minute cartoon but the 13 or 26 or 52 or 78 episodes that we're making i don't you know and, and we don't always record in sequence and so sometimes i have to go you know what we haven't recorded the episode that just precedes this Remind me what's going to happen that leads us into the first line of this piece. And so it's a lot of just getting my eggs in a row, you know, my ducks in a row, eggs in a basket. Well, oh, you know what's ducks are eggs beforehand. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, so, so it helps me on a very selfish note to remember what show I'm directing and what where I'm going and where the piece has to get to. and And also, I also need to know what's going to follow it, because I've not seen that script yet, I'm sure, as far as... Don't peek out here because that character has to get more insane here. So don't let the Joker go completely wacko here because the next episode is going to have to go wackoer. And if you you know kill Mark Hamill's voice at this uh, session, you're not going to be able to get him for that one. You know to to, to get to the farther um, energy that he needs to get to. So it's just a good place for me to, to to rehearse for myself as well as for the actors.
3: So was every episode of Batman the Animated Series
2: read as a table read first? Just, just about. Yep. I would say f- for the most part. The only time did this happen I guess it might have been during this, the the uh, the end and I do you remember how many episodes we made it was so like there were 85
3: okay. in the original run and I think there was like another 22 24 Yeah, I thought it was more or than 100. Or something. There I was like was, 108 total if okay. you count the new Batman okay. adventures.
2: So there was a period of time at the end of that run when Kevin moved back to New York City. And so we had to do an IS actually I think it was just phone patch ISDN wasn't even available yet. And the difference for those listeners is a phone patch is strictly hearing the voice through a phone line. That means the actors say in New York, I'm in Los Angeles, we're listening over a phone line, they're recording in New York, I have to wait for them to FedEx or whatever service they're using that tape to Los Angeles to have Kevin's performance. Now we have Skype, we have ISDN, we have a whole bunch of different things. ISDN is a satellite record, so Kevin's voice in New York is beamed to a satellite, beamed back down to Los Angeles. It's recorded in Los Angeles. So when we finish the session, I've got Kevin's voice right then, right there. So that was a, a big...
3: Cartoons by way of outer space. <laughs> it's true,
2: and, it, and much faster and more efficient and everything. So um, that was helpful. But I think for the most part, we table-read the whole thing. And, you know, in Batman, there were so many guest villains and guest people in it that it really did help to set those guest voices in a table read, in Mm -hmm. a rehearsal, because those actors may not have known the series yet, and they needed to see what everybody else or hear what everybody else sounded like, so they weren't doing Uh, you know a smurfs episode when we're doing a batman episode do you know what i mean we wanted that energy to be the same so they didn't seem like they were out of that world
1: hello batman's anime podcast listeners this is the mayor of podcasts and i'm interrupting here it's time for a quick commercial break but guys don't go away because soon you're gonna hear andrea romano talk about what it was like to direct batman voiceover sessions whoa okay that's it i'm done talking here Hey, you
0: cowboy Dranculas, it's that time again. Time for the 666th annual Monster Down Ho-Mash. Monster Down Ho-Mash. Gotham City's only Monster Mash combined with a hoedown you'll ever go to in your life. In your life. Throw on your favorite mummy costume and square dance with a sheriff and his bushy mustache. BUSHY BUSHY MUSTACHE Dust off the old clogs and click-clack the night away with the FRANKENSTEIN! THE DOCTOR, NOT THE MONSTER The Monster Downhole Mash is located in the city's wharf district perfect for competitive jig fiddling between creatures from the black lagoon and skeleton mermaids skeleton mermaids monster down home mash doors open at 1am directly after the full hoot moon nanny it's a full moon hoot nanny that is difficult to say we also host a monster truck rally which seems to service the same crowd synergy because of last year's string of indecent exposures, we ask that no Monster Down Ho-Mashers attend as the Invisible Man with no clothes on. We do not tolerate that kind of behavior. Monster Down Ho-Mash. It's literally the only place in Gotham you can go for a Monster Mash and a Ho-Down at the same time in the same place. We are mostly balding men with family! Sit along and buy tickets now, you little doggies. Ghost doggies, that is. <laughs> Monster down, home man
2: Let's talk about, um, we've mentioned it a couple of times, the, on Leather Wings. Yes, absolutely. Because there was something that I wanted to absolutely remember to talk about. Uh, there's several things I want to mention, which is when that piece starts, and it was great fun, by the way, doing research on this, because I had to watch these episodes again so I could speak when was somewhat intelligently. you watched them? Uh, years ago. Years and years and years ago. Um, I just don't have time and and it was joyous to go back and watch them again. I loved it. It made me really happy. So watching the first episode, as I had remembered it as years had gone by, was, yeah, the first episode wasn't that good. We got better. But then I watched it now and went, you know what? It wasn't bad at all. It was pretty darn good, especially because it was so groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, but the very first line of that is spoken by a helicopter pilot who says he sees something in the sky. What was that? and that voice is Kevin Conroy. I've always wondered. It's Kevin Conroy. it sounds
3: like him, but like not enough that it... You know.
2: I know. Screen Actors Guild allows us essentially to use an actor for three voices for one price so that's a big part of my casting too is finding versatile actors who can not only give me whatever main character they're coming in for but two incidentals as well and so we were just beginning we're trying to find out what kevin's range was and what other voices he could do and so we gave him that helicopter pilot but i love the fact that the very first line of the very first episode of batman the animated series is spoken by kevin conway that made me really happy yeah it's so cool um uh, we've lost a lot of the actors that have that were in that. Uh, uh, Bob Hastings, Commissioner Gordon, has He's passed away. He's always the Commissioner Gordon in my brain He as was well. so good. And, you know, he too was a comic actor. He was known from McHale's Navy, and he was kind of silly and broad, and he was so good There's in this series. There's a
3: tenderness to his truly, Gordon. Truly, truly. Uh, an authority, but also, you know, a guy who cares. That's right,
2: and, and which is key in Gordon because you have to wonder why does this guy allow Batman... To exist in this city. Everybody else wants Batman gone. There's so many in the police department, especially, you know, the Bobby Costanzo character, Bullock, he wants him dead. Sure. And so, you know, and a lot of other police officers and and, and people in, you know, law enforcement, they're like, no, we don't need Batman. We need to do this by the book. And but Gordon lets him in. And then of course, anytime you have a Barbara Gordon story, you get to see what he's like as a dad. Mm-hmm. And so we needed somebody and, and truly Bob won the audition. We auditioned tons of people and he absolutely won us. Do you remember anybody who got close? I don't. I could look it up, but I don't. Um, But one of my other... Uh, favorite bits of casting stories about that series was we went through a huge amount of casting for Alfred. And we wanted that dry British accent. And uh, we cast an actor that I had worked with many, many times, Clive Revel. Very, very good. He appears in that first episode Mm -hmm. on on Leather Wings. And then I think within two or three episodes I get a call from his agent saying, uh, Clive just accepted, I think it was a touring show. He's going to be traveling all throughout the United States and then Europe And he's going to be in places where you're not going to be able to access him. And so I had to recast it right away. So that's why it happened. Yes. And again, I would not have recast it. But, again, one of those instances where... Just a happy accident. Exactly. Now, the fact that Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., God rest his soul, he just passed away within the last year or so, I loved him so much. The fact that he would even audition blew my mind. And we went back and listened to the five... You know, contenders for that role. And Ephraim was the second choice. And so we just had to go around the approval process again and have everybody say, yes, he's the guy. And he was such an elegant, wonderful Alfred. And he is the voice that I hear in my head. Mm -hmm. And, And then when I did the research again and listened back to that first episode, I went, oh, yeah, Clyde. Now he was drier and a little bit more aloof and colder. Ephraim had a real warmth to him. And what I liked about and I didn't mind Clyde's performance at all. What I liked about Clyde's performance so much was that coldness. What I loved about Ephraim's was, this is the man who raised Bruce Bruce Wayne. He's got that real family warmth, Mm -hmm. that real protective, it's not just Master Bruce, don't do that. It was much more... So you stay well. He was the Please. one
3: who changed his diapers. That's that right. was kind of the vibe and, you got from
2: And him. And continued to bandage him throughout all the various things and that happened. And had
3: some of the funniest lines Indeed. in an otherwise dark and pretty straightforward drama.
2: That's right. That's right. And so um, it was a happy accident. I, I I loved him so, and I was very, very proud to have him be a part of our series. Um, so on Leather wings, I had gone to a party... At Frank Welker's house, one of the giants in the animation world. Frank Welker, who I represented a 1,000 years ago when I was an agent. I represented him in 1980 through like 1983 or somewhere around there. Um, And uh, I went to a party at Frank's house and met the Beastmaster, Mark Singer. Gorgeous man. And I thought, oh, he's not even going to talk to me. He's too beautiful. (laughs) Couldn't have been a friendlier guy. Really pleasant, happy, wonderful, nice, warm guy. And I said to him, would you ever be interested in... Doing voices for animation, I, I cast and direct. A lot. Oh, sure, that sounds like fun. So this episode of Batman, the first episode of Batman, I need the Man Bat, and I thought, who's going to sound like? I know. Let's bring in Mark Singer again. Never having done this before, taking a big risk, bringing in an actor who I hadn't played. Talk to Bruce about it, Bruce Tim. Bruce, would you like the idea of you know Beastmaster coming into play? Yeah, let's give him a try, and he's terrific because he's great. we don't really. Um, meet him as the man-bat until after the transformation scene. And we have a real red herring in there. We have a doctor who's voiced by René Aubergenois who's always the villain. Renee is always the villain. Rene oh, yeah. is a he's set wonderful... set to
3: seem like he was the scheming... Si- you know, yeah, he was the bad guy. And
2: Renee has that great kind of voice quality. He can do that so well with his voice. He's a very nice man and a very accomplished actor. And I'd worked with him a lot at Hanna-Barbera, so I knew his work. And so he was the perfect red herring. And then Mark ends up being the, the bad guy. And uh, and the, the, his wife... Is, well, the bad guy. So he's not really a bad guy. He's, he's the man bad. he is transformed into this character. Poor
3: Kirk Langstrom.
2: Yes, uh, and we've seen him in many incarnations throughout the various Batman things I've done. And then the, his wife is played by an actress named Meredith McRae. And you may not know who Meredith McRae is because mm-hmm. you're a very young man. Petticoat Junction. You have to IMDb. I her. know of Petticoat Junction. Uh, yes, there's really not much reason that you would know that, but you have to IMDb her and see who she is. But she was a a well known actress, and I was very happy to so have super had the opportunity excited to bring her in there. It was lovely. It was just lovely. So we liked to pepper the uh, casting with actors who might not be enormously known, but for some fans are going to go, "Whoa, Meredith McCrae or whomever came in to play." somewhat incidental roles, but they were important for that and they needed to be good actors. So I tried to... You know, we never knew how many episodes we were truly going to make at any time the plug could have been pulled. And I always wanted to try to get people in before that might happen or before the series came to a wrap or whatever. So we always tried to bring in interesting people.
3: Well, in general, what's one of your favorite memories of the show overall? Is there like a behind-the-scenes...
2: There was an episode we made that was... I could only remember the name. It was a—the a, a, the Mad Hatter was the villain, but he has somehow affected Batman so that Batman in dark—oh, is it called? Dreams and Yes.
3: Perchance to Dream? Perchance
2: to Dream was the name of it. That is such a wonderful episode. And it's a Kevin Conroy tour de force. And what we find out is that really uh, Mad Hatter has— it is Mad Hatter. Yes, mm-hmm. I think so. It is. Has affected him so that he's seeing a mirror image of himself, but an evil mi- mirror image of himself. Is, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, at the end,
3: they're in a bell tower. exactly. Yes, and Batman exactly. is fighting Bruce.
2: Right, exactly. And so that's a, a wonderful... Episode And to watch Kevin perform that episode where facially, when he was playing one guy, he'd be one way and then his face would exactly, would change when he's playing the other guy. And I said to him, do you want to just go through the entire scene playing one guy and then go through the whole scene playing the other guy? He said, no, let me act against myself. And watching him go back, it was great. It was just... It, 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 to watch it was stunning. I wish we were filming during that so that people could see what he was doing with Is this. Is
3: there any footage of people in the record booth from the show?
2: There's some that exist. We did do some, but, you know, it wasn't nearly as popular back then. Now we do a right lot, now, of, it, a lot but of it. Was,
3: BTS that's right there's a lot of BTS behind the scenes.
2: Exactly, and a lot of B-roll and a lot of... You know, DVD extra stuff, and Mm -hmm. it wasn't done as much. And you know, actors, a lot of voiceover actors liked to come in and do this, as I said earlier, because they didn't have to worry about their hair and makeup. They could come in looking like a slob, so they don't really, they didn't really want to be shot. They didn't want to have video shot while they were working because they liked the fact that they could be unshaven and they could, you know, just work. And then, as soon as all this DVD extra stuff came on, then it was all about we'll have hair and makeup for you. And then it became a whole different thing. It is interesting for the fans. It adds a different level to the actor who's coming in. It's not, and so. Some actors will simply say, I don't want to be shot. Under no, no sir, You can't pay me enough money to shoot me while I'm doing this. And, and this is one of the things that I have to tell the actors, too, is you cannot be concerned about how you look when you're doing these voices, when you're doing this acting, because you're going to look hideous in some of it. And it's not about being pretty. It's not about that. It's about what you need to do with your face to get the right performance. There's so much.
3: It's... Uh... You have to do so much with your body. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. There's a lot of body stuff. And I always have to tell actors, you know, you're, you're, yeah. And this is one of my favorite stories to tell way back when when I was directing a series called DuckTales for Disney. A oh, I think years I've ago. heard of it. Yeah, it's a little thing called DuckTales. Um, I brought Carol Channing into work. And, you know, wonderful actress <laughs> from forever ago. And she was wearing a starched white cotton shirt. And every time she moved, it, Wrinkled and made noise. And I I talked to everybody. Does anybody have a T-shirt? Nobody had anything. I now always have a T-shirt with me. So if this ever happens again, I can give the actor something. And so I said, Miss Channing, you're not going to be able to move when you're acting. Oh, darling! And she unbuttons her blouse, takes it off and hangs it on the end of the microphone stand, and performs the entire role in her bra and pants. Full pants. But just her bra. And it was during the times of shoulder pads. Shoulder pads were really popular. And so she had just two shoulder pads stuck under her bra straps, so they look like little epaulettes, you know, like a a military uniform. And did the entire performance that way because she was like, darling, I can't act without moving. And so it was brilliant. And I often tell that story and there's maybe three or four other actors that I have in time had to have them take off their shirt Um, John C. McGinley was one of them in a boondocks episode um And I wasn't in the room with him, but Oliver Platt did a Wonder Woman uh, movie with me. He was in New York. I was in L.A. And, of course, he was making noise. And I said, you have to take And I think he's, even though he's a big man, I think he's one of the sexiest human beings on the planet. And uh, I was like, oh, I'm so sorry I'm not in the same studio with you. And he was like, no, I'm apologizing to the engineer that he has to watch this. I'm like, I'm sure (laughs) you're gorgeous. (laughs) I know. Yeah, I'm sure you're gorgeous. Um, But So that's always a, a thing. But you have to tell actors to be careful of jewelry and clothes, because you want them to move. You want them to be able to, because it's very hard to do the sound of throwing a punch with your hands in your pocket. If you go it's different than Hugh. You just can get more out of it if you can actually throw the punch. Um, so that's always kind of fun to watch actors watch them as they're doing that kind of physical action. And, you know, there's all kinds of things where, say in a Mr. Freeze episode, where a character is, you know, being frozen. So they have to do the dialogue right up until... They freeze. And so you have to. You watch them work through it, and they're all physical, 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 and then they stop, stop moving. And that's really funny. If they don't do it physically, it doesn't come out vocally. Yeah. And so you have to get them and go, just do it. Just physically do it, and then it'll come out better than you're trying to manufacture that sound better if they physically do it. So that's always fun to watch actors. My, my problem is I'm either looking at a storyboard or a script. We're going to have to make sure all the words are there and that we're getting everything. So everybody else in the room is watching the actor and they have a much more entertaining view. And I remember very well an episode where Bruce Timm, the storyboard artists, uh, often were invited to come to the sessions. Um, they get too busy nowadays and it's not time for them to come and watch as often as possible. But I remember Bruce turning to I think it was an actor named Chad Einbinder. And he was playing this guest role. And Bruce said to the storyboard guy... I want you to watch the actor because I want you to draw exactly what he's doing. He is mm. doing exactly what I expect this to look like when we have picture. And that was kind of cool for the actor to know that he was doing it so well physically that that was what we were going to use. And then now we have motion capture, which is exactly that. Yeah. That's the actor being you know uh, uh, electronically uh, digitized to do exactly what they were doing physically during the recording. So it's kind of a, that was kind of an earlier version of, of um, motion capture. That's
3: really cool. Yeah. Okay, one last
2: question. Yes.
3: What was it like when the series wrapped? Uh, was, did it feel like... Was there like a big fanfare? Or did it feel like moving on to the next project? There was...
2: I ha, you know, I've been very lucky that um, since I became a freelance director, which was 1989, I've rarely had less than five projects going at the same time. At one point, I had 11, including during the time when I was doing Batman because we were in production for Superman still uh, or or as well Superman came up and then Justice League and then a bunch of other shows I was doing for other studios and so there there was a tremendous sadness it really was like oh I'm going to miss this but I had so much else going on that it was like it was okay to have one less thing on my plate. The good thing was, because of Justice League, Batman still lived on, so we didn't really have to say goodbye to Batman. And then so many other projects came up that had Batman, and including Batman Beyond, which gave us the wonderful opportunity to use Kevin as the 80-year-old Batman and then have a young actor, Will Friedle, come in and play the young Terry McGuinness,
4: the young
2: Batman. So I never have had to say goodbye to Kevin Conroy. I was at his house that he just bought here in Los Angeles. his probably third, fourth house in Los Angeles over the years um, this past weekend so and we work together all the time and I just adore him and he, and he it's very funny when I'm working on other series and people say Andrea do you think we could get Kevin Conroy to come in and guess and I'm like I know him pretty well oh, I can at I least pull some strings. ask him I could at least ask him and he almost always says yes um but I, I I have such a soft spot in my heart for Batman the Animated Series. It was the first of a kind for me. And it was very special for me, too, because it was the beginning of my marriage to Bruce Tim. Marta will forgive me, Bruce's wife. But we spent so much time together doing so many things. And I learned so much about the DC universe from Bruce. He's a walking encyclopedia. And so when a certain character would be referenced in a very small way... And I knew nothing about them. I would have to turn to Bruce and go, "I don't know who this character is. What? uh, What do you? uh, Who's Nightwing? What the heck? Who is now one of my favorite characters? But, you know, I don't understand what happened. And then he would have to tell me the story of how." Nightwing came into being or a character that would just have a little tiny, it would be a shout out to the fans who really knew and we would never really have time to play it all the way out. I'd have to go, Bruce, who, wh- what is this? And he, he could explain to me in very few words. And then a thing that would happen in um, Justice League, when it became Justice League Unlimited, which was within the last couple of episodes, the, the toy company wanted to roll out a bunch of toys. So they had to have the characters appear, even if it was just a, a small, you know, tiny little role or just a little two or three lines of dialogue they had to appear so they could you know merchandise them and and have them be on the shelves and those characters i knew nothing about and so i really had to go bruce who is because just to cast it who is this guy and what do i need to know about casting it and what you know is this character likely to come back if we do more and you know you don't want to cast it just as a one shot and then Cast it incorrectly, and then have him show up again five episodes down the line. So right. that was a really joyous. I, I adore Bruce Tim. I love his professional professionalism. I love his um, knowledge of the material. I love how opinionated he is. Whether I agreed with him or disagreed with him, he knows what he wants. He
3: seems to have a very specific vision. He does.
2: And what was really cool about him, too, was that there were times I could sway him. I would say, Bruce, I promise you I will get it for you exactly that way, but let me also present this to you. And if you don't like it, you got the one that you wanted. And every once in a while he would go, that's good too Andrea and sometimes I would hear that take being used and so we had a very it wasn't like I was his you know um mouthpiece we were collaborators we worked together to create something that um, fans have are still talking about today and what more could you ask for than to have people love what you did 20 years ago and their kids still responding to it in a really positive way at this point that's That's joyous and wonderful.
3: It's art. It's beautiful. I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much for sitting down with me.
2: My pleasure. This was really, really fun for me. Great. Thank you.
3: So we've reached the end of another Batman the Animated Podcast. Wow, that was a
1: very good episode of Bitman's Annie Nane Podcast. What's an Annie Nane, if you don't mind me asking? I'm questioning here.
3: Why are you still here? Well, my sash fell
1: off and I had to come back for it. It's too large after I lost all the weight. You know, I gotta get it resized. Great, is there anything you want to say before you leave? Yes, I do want to say a couple of more things. Don't forget it to vit www.moodi.guli.ani.moodi.gul.ani.gul.moodi.for.reelection.www There's no way that's a real website. You know what? You got me. It's not. But if we all wish hard enough, maybe it will become one. Next on your birthday cake, make a wish for that website. Okay, I got to get over to the podcast. Just about all the different kinds of cereals. Bye bye, and I'm talking to you. <laughs>
3: mayors am i right hello justin today's nerd level is i'm sorry kevin conroy bot you're too late the episode's over dang it dang it though if i had ears, they would be streaming down my face i am vengeance i am the night i am kevin conroy bot if you liked what you heard, please rate and subscribe Batman the Animated Podcast in iTunes. You can also find us on SoundCloud and Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at btaspodcast, or follow me at HeyJustin for updates. Don't think tweeting matters? Think again, because a fan of the show at Wade I L L Sun tweeted about it. We now have an episode coming up with Lauren Lester, the voice of Robin and Nightwing, on the books. Thanks, Wade I L L Sun. Wadey ll son i don't know but thank you batman the animated podcast is hosted edited and produced by me justin michael tom smith created the show logo casey trela helped produce the theme song and harry chaskin is the voice of the podcast thanks to drew tarver for playing the mayor of podcasts jace armstrong for playing kevin conroy bot and dan lippert and harry chaskin for doing some voices in that commercial i'd also like to thank my guests roxy radulescu and andrea romano last but certainly not least Thank you to This American Life co-founder, Tori Malatia, who actually works as a host at P.F. Chang's on the weekends, and he seated me in a date with an overly formal, It's
1: in me.
3: Isn't he the best? All right, well, join me in a couple of weeks for more Batman the Animated Podcast.